Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis. Maybe a good and two crazies today. We'll let that kind of be in the eye of the beholder. We're also brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle. Let's talk about the good martini. It's got nothing to do with breaking news other than the fact that breaking news between two scorpions is officially available today. If you ordered it on Kindle, you probably already have it. If you ordered it uh, through the traditional source of mail or UPS or FedEx or whatever that is, uh, it should be at your home soon. Jim was kind enough to give me a PDF copy of the book. Uh, I finished it last night, and let me just tell you, there is a lot packed into this story. It's known as a dangerous click novel. That's kind of the subhead, and you get to meet all the folks in the dangerous click, and you really get to identify with these characters Alec and Katrina and Raquel and Dee and Ward, and you really start to uh, feel a connection to these people. Jim presents them so well. He presents the plot, which has so many uh, fascinating twists and turns so well. So, Jim, we've talked about your books in the past. There was uh, The Weed Agency, which is technically fictional, but there's a lot of truth woven in there. You had uh, Heavy Lifting with Cam Edwards, and that was obviously nonfiction. This one is mostly fiction, but it's obviously predicated on some things that really have happened and are happening in our world. So tell our listeners a little bit more about what they can expect when they order this. Not if they order it, but when they order it. Uh, well, first of all, Greg, thank you for all of the kind words. Uh, why is this a good martini? Because if you're tired of hearing me talk about it, it's coming towards an end eventually. <laughs> so I, I've had these ideas for these characters in my head for a very long time. These are the kinds of novels that I particularly enjoy in my downtime. I'll read the nonfiction political stuff and I can enjoy them, but sometimes I just want to see terrorists get their heads blown off. <laughs> 24 in novel form. I, I was always reading the Tom Clancy books. You know, I would say growing up, but maybe I was you know, in my teen years around then. The, the interesting thing is you know, I probably would never sit down and read a book about submarine warfare. But when you do the hunt for Red October, you create a story around it. All of a sudden, I'm engrossed. And in the process, you end up absorbing a lot and understanding a lot. Probably the, one of my favorite recent examples of this is one of the Brad Thorne novels. I'm fairly convinced at some point somebody made a bet with him and said, could you make a thriller about the Federal Reserve? <laughs> <laughs> and Brad Thorne, I don't know if he lost the bet or whatever, but he ended up doing it. It was actually really good. I ended up learning more about the Federal Reserve Board and how it works and its history. And you know, the plot was somebody had kidnapped a bunch of them. Uh, there was a nefarious plot involved. But so as a result of that, to me, fiction is a way to explore stuff that isn't always as dynamic or doesn't always have a good news hook, but just the stuff that kind of fascinates me. And one of the things, you know, so it's kind of the, the, the impetus for the plot for this was like, okay, we've lucked out. Al-Qaeda doesn't understand America. They thought knocking down the Twin Towers was going to destroy the American economy. It was very bad, had a very bad impact on it, but did not destroy us. Apparently, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed told his interrogators, how are we supposed to know Bush was going to invade Afghanistan? meaning they totally did not understand how the American people and how the American government was going to respond to the 9-11 attacks. ISIS thought that we would be intimidated by their videos. They don't understand us. But the question is, what if a terrorist did understand us? What if a terrorist group really did study American culture and try to figure out what would we be vulnerable to? What messages, what actions, what would really frighten us? And I think about that old saying, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. What if you could weaponize fear? What if you could really try to turn fear 
into a, a very dangerous and divisive force. People will do things when they're frightened that they otherwise never would do. That kind of gives you the gist of it. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you really enjoy the characters, Greg. Uh, you know, the people who have speculated that they're based on people I know are all, there's a, there's a pretty strong impetus there, although sometimes obviously both for purposes of fiction and let me put it this way. My friend Cam's a really good tough guy. As far as I know, he hasn't gone around the world killing bad people. Uh, <laughs> if he does, he's done a really good job of hiding it. And in fact, actually, if he was using guns to kill lots of people, that'd be a really terrible cover for him to be host of uh, NRA TV. But anyway, so that's where this kind of came from. And the freedom of a novel is that I can go off and explore and write about almost any topic that I want. Uh, if for those of you who live in the Chicago area who've ever heard of the Max Headroom incident, this event in the late 80s that was in which they were able to uh, jam broadcast signals plays kind of a key part in this. So Greg is correct. It is jam-packed, uh, although hopefully most people have said that it moves pretty quick. Uh, I hope everybody enjoys it. The pre-sales have been terrific for everyone who's already bought one. Thank you. For those of you still on the fence, look, you got Kindle Unlimited. It's free. If you don't have it, it's $3.99 <laughs> as an ebook form, and it's an entire $13 in paperback. I hope it gives everybody their money's worth. Father's Day is this weekend. If you want to get something for dad, maybe for a grad, maybe you just need some beach reading. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you for your support. And yes, I am very much hard at work at a sequel. And hopefully this will be a long continuing series. Well, congratulations on the robust sales to date. And uh, hopefully it does continue. And as Jim mentioned uh, in passing, when he's referring to the Brad Thorne novel, with how much he learned about the Federal Reserve, when you read this, you learn a lot about uh, the history of different parts of the world where different scenes in this novel take place from our own hemisphere to the Mediterranean to Asia and, and elsewhere. So as well as uh, how our government works in a lot of different situations. So oh yeah, very, 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 very interesting. And so between two scorpions, in case you haven't heard us say it the last several weeks every day. And Jim, speaking of uh, how government works, we're running a huge debt, of course. Sometimes there's a lot of bureaucracy in the way. But when it comes to the numbers, the federal government sometimes doesn't realize how much it's bleeding. And uh, if you're running a business, that's really going to be a problem for you. Because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem that growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess. It takes up too much time and too many resources, and that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and human resources instantly right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide entitled Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can get it at netsuite.com slash martini. That's netsuite.com slash martini to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash martini. Netsuite.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And uh, we got to start charging Joe Biden some rent for being in the bad <laughs> martini. He's been here a lot lately, flip-flopping all over the place on the Hyde Amendment. And now we've got another major flip-flop because, as Jim has chronicled uh, extensively in the Morning Jolt, and we've talked about to some extent here on the Three Martini Lunch, 
Joe Biden seems to be uh, in the wayback machine when it comes to China policy. Here's Axios. Weeks after downplaying the threat that China poses to the U.S. on the global stage, 2020 presidential candidate Joe Biden is calling for action to combat China's outpacing of the U.S. in emerging technologies, infrastructure, and global influence. You know, just a few weeks ago, he was saying, they're not bad, folks. Folks, they're not competition for us. But now he's saying this, quote, while Trump is tweeting, China is making massive investments in technologies of the future. While Trump is name calling, China is building roads, bridges and high speed rail. While Trump is pursuing a damaging and erratic trade war without any real strategy, China is positioning itself to lead the world in renewable energy. While Trump is attacking our friends, China is pressing its advantage all over the world. But the reason I'm optimistic and the point I've been making for years is if we do what we need to do here at home, if we stand up for American interests, if we invest in our people, live our values and work with our partners, we can outcompete anyone. So Joe Biden is basically about 20 to 30 years, maybe even 40 years behind the eight ball on China's economic challenge to the United States, Jim. But uh, rather than just say, hey, I'm kind of stuck in the past, he's just decided he suddenly realized what Trump's economic plan was when it came to trade in China. So that's why he suddenly realizes that China is a significant threat. This is also the same guy who's going to Iowa today and plans to literally call Trump an existential threat to the nation. He might even say literally because that's (laughs) what he likes to do a lot. So, Jim, this is the guy who's supposed to be the moderate, the stable force who doesn't just shift with the winds and doesn't go to incendiary rhetoric. But now he's flip-flopped on two major issues, and he's planning to call the current president an existential threat. A preview of today's remarks. Folks, I'm not being facetious here. I am talking about literal existentialism. (laughs) Literally. So this is one of the things that makes politics so maddening, is that there's going to be this attempt to memory hole the past two times Joe Biden has talked about China, in which he basically talked about all the concerns that he's going to lay out today, he acted as if they were wide-eyed, crazy paranoia. And now he's going to flip on that. And now he's going to say, oh, no, no, we're going to pretend that he never said any of those other things. We're going to pretend that this was always his position. And while I should be glad that, that Biden is shifting closer to this perspective that I hold, I, I, one, I find it irritating, and two, this clearly is for somebody, you know, somebody on his campaign or somebody on his team, maybe one of his foreign policy kitchen cabinet guys that uh, actually, Mr. Vice President, there's a lot to worry about with China, whether it's stealing technology, stealing intellectual property, the building of artificial islands in the South China Sea, aggression towards its neighbors, cyber hacking, more traditional forms of espionage. Man, there, there's no shortage of reasons to be worried about China. What I hope someone will push him on is that, you know, Mr. Vice President, for all extents and purposes, We've seen your approach to China for an eight-year span. Their bad behavior did not change in that time period. Their economic leverage over us did not change on us. He is one of those guys who's been arguing that the more we trade with China, the more we engage with China, the better things will get, the more they will open up and they will experience freedom of thought and they'll permit more freedom of speech and they'll be less authoritarian and things will get better. And it hasn't. It did not increase our leverage over them. It increased their leverage over us. And now we're all worried about Chinese spyware on our cell phones. When Biden was, you know, vice president, personnel records of everybody who works for the federal government got stolen from OPM. Now, was there a swift and brutal and, and you know, intense response to this? Were there serious consequences? No. And by the way, there's no examples of Biden being the outlier in the Obama administration and wanting a tougher line on China. And my suspicion is that a lot of Democrats insist I'll be better at foreign policy because I'm not Trump. Now, 
that he undoubtedly can be combative, dismissive, inappropriate. You know, all of these Democrats basically believe just by my own shining, charismatic personality, I will enhance U.S. power in the world. And I don't buy that. <laughs> I think you need a better answer than that. And I think up until uh, yesterday morning, Joe Biden's position on China was not just wrong. It was like frighteningly naive about the current state of U.S.-Chinese relations. Well, he's in Iowa today. The media love the fact that they're both going to be in Iowa at the same time. Every radio broadcast I listened to this morning from a national news perspective led with that fact that they're both going to be in Iowa. Not together. Uh, Trump's not even there for a campaign event. It's a big state, really. It's not not like they bumped into each other at the mall or something. (laughs) Yeah. Trump's going there for an energy event. I'm sure he'll get political at some point while he's there. And and Biden's obviously a candidate. So uh, I don't know why they're making such a huge deal out of it. All right. Let's move on to our crazy martini now. And this is courtesy of the Free Beacon. But they highlight a tweet from Wolf Blitzer at CNN that says, here's the CNN Des Moines Register Iowa poll in case you missed it, which leads me to believe, Jim, that there were actually three Wolf Blitzer tweets. One, stand by for the poll. Two, here's the poll. And here's the poll in case you missed it. So I'm assuming there were three Wolf Blitzer tweets there. But anyway, they got a lot of people on this uh, poll, obviously. There's a lot of Democrats running for president. You got Biden ahead at 24 percent, Sanders at 16, Warren, surprisingly, doing much better than she had been previously, up at 15 percent, Buttigieg, 14 percent. Then you're down to Harris at 7 percent, not sure, 6 percent, and then 18 candidates losing to not sure, including Klobuchar and O'Rourke at 2 percent. Then at 1 percent, you've got Bennett, Booker, Castro, Delaney, Gabbard, Inslee, and Yang. Then you have asterisks with Bullock, Gillibrand, Hickenlooper, Moulton, Ryan, Swalwell, and Williamson. And then literally with zero people in the state supporting them, you have Wayne Messam and, yes, Bill de Blasio. So, Jim, not sure is surging in Iowa. This could be huge. Now, yeah, well, you forgot something there, Greg. We should note that also uh, not sure did finish ahead of Irving Schmidlap. Yes. Nonetheless, online, there was a big surge of discussion and excitement, and I'd argue enthusiasm for Irving Schmidlap. People pointed out his entire campaign has zero carbon emissions. Not many campaigns can say that. No scandals. Some people say that he doesn't have enough of a record. I think it was somebody pointed out that really you could argue it's a spotless record. Yes. You look at the Irving Schmidlap campaign, there's really not a lot to criticize. (laughs) I want Kirsten Gillibrand and Hickenlooper and Castro and Michael Bennett, and all these guys who are really at the bottom of the campaign. Look, we all know it's not going to happen for them. But I still think something good can come out of this. I want them to form an Iowa and New Hampshire-based band called the Asterisks. It would actually be a really cool band name. And, you know, give each one of them an instrument. They go around. They're kind of the opening act for all the debates or something. You know, be more fun than the, you know, not ready for prime time debate that Fox News and other networks are doing in the last cycle. On the one hand, an undecided percentage at this point shouldn't be surprising. Let's also point out it's fairly early in the process. We haven't even had a debate yet, although the first debate is at the end of the month. So we're not super far away from this process starting. But here's the thing. when I, I, I'm trying to think which is more embarrassing. Being an asterisk, being the zero that de Blasio has gotten in a bunch of these debates, being you know less than 1%, being the kind of person who complains that the 1% threshold is somehow unfair... For heaven's sake, you're going to be president of the United States. Suck it up, man. The other thing is, if you were Bill de Blasio, the wisest thing to do is legally change your name to not sure. (laughs) That might work. My favorite reaction to this poll comes from uh, O'Rourke, who famously said now, well, yeah, 2%. Well, that's no big deal, because when I got into the Senate race, nobody thought I was going to win that either. 
which makes <laughs> people realize y- you didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, here's the thing: if he had won the Senate race, first of all, he'd be Senator O'Rourke. You wouldn't be surprised if people still encouraged him. There'd still be probably everybody and their brother would be talking about Beto O'Rourke being the uh, most likely running mate for whoever gets the, the nomination. Under the thinking that, ooh. If you have O'Rourke on the ticket, or maybe even people will be thinking, if we nominate O'Rourke, we can win Texas and we'll win by a big landslide. His whole argument really doesn't work <laughs> when he fell short, because as many people have pointed out, look, you had $80 million in donations and almost the entire National Press Corps acted as your PR agent. You got the most glowing coverage probably since Barack Obama in 2004. And if you couldn't win in those circumstances, beating Trump at a national level is going to be tougher than beating Ted Cruz in Texas. Yeah, actually, maybe it's debatable. Maybe maybe they're about the same level of difficulty. But uh, anyway, that's where we are. And uh, yeah, so my, my apologies to the asterisks. On the other hand, I really think they should look hard at that band option. Because one, you know, people, the other is people would like them. We saw from that video, Kirsten Gillibrand's got the dancing and shot sipping skills. <laughs> very, very delicately, you know, not, not, not throwing it back, just kind of enjoying herself. Somewhere, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee is listening to this podcast and going, oh, that would have been so much more fun than the kitty table debate in 2016. Yes. Could have bust out my you know, base. And- by the way, is that um, I think about it, you know, Gillibrand might be the one that's most surprising to be in that asterisk category. I kind of wonder at this point, are we going to look back and say it all came down crashing for her after I just want to get some ranch? <laughs> Like this one woman at the restaurant who had no interest in, in what she was saying, no interest in her campaign, maybe even no interest in politics, just wanted to get some ranch dressing, came by, ended, entered the picture, and it was, it's been all downhill ever since. That means ranch dressing is at least ahead of de Blasio and Messam in this race and possibly ahead of some of the others. <laughs> oh, I, I, think, I think ranch dressing could go toe-to-toe with any of them. <laughs> I'd vote for ranch dressing over any of these people. So, we, As far as we're concerned, Greg, there are at least three good options in the Democratic <laughs> primary. Ranch dressing, not sure, and Irving Schmidt left. So right. you know, it's not that we have too many candidates, Greg. It's that we have the wrong candidates. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Jim, too much fun. Maybe we can just raise enough money to get Schmidlap on stage, and then when he's a no-show, it becomes a huge story, and his campaign oh, can finally goodness. get some attention. candidate of mystery. <laughs> In the meantime, good luck with the sales. I'm just Googling FEC. Do you need an actual candidate to have a presidential campaign? In the meantime, good luck with sales of Between Two Scorpions, and we'll talk again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Remember to visit our friends over at netsuite.com slash martini for NetSuite by Oracle. And tune in again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.